invite you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. We'll be considering verses 1 through 11 this evening. Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. So far in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen that Jesus uh, was baptized. He received the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit drove him out in the wilderness and was tempted by the devil. That this is the second Adam who's on the scene to do what the first Adam has failed to do. The last couple passages, uh, we have seen the beginning of this earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, which continues today as he calls his first disciples. So Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Please uh, pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, He said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, if you believe in Jesus, how does the Bible describe who you are, your identity? It's an interesting question to think about because the Bible presents us many images or analogies to describe those who profess true faith in Jesus Christ. And each one of these images or analogies teach us something unique and particular about who we are, our identity. For example, if you believe in Jesus, the the Bible describes you as someone who is in Christ, united to Christ. You are a member of Christ's body. You are a member of the bride of Christ. You are a slave of Christ. You are a citizen of heaven or the new Jerusalem. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit, a living stone, an exile, or uh, one who is in exile, one who is a pilgrim. You are a Christian. And today we come across another image 
that of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. In fact, we read in, in Acts 11 that followers of Jesus uh, were, began to be referred to as Christians, but before that, they were just called disciples, followers of, of Jesus Christ. In fact, in Matthew 28, as Jesus handing over his mission to his apostles to bring the same gospel to the Gentiles and the ends of the earth, he says to these apostles, go and make disciples of all the nations. This idea of being a disciple in Jesus' day had to do with following a particular teacher or rabbi and both literally and metaphorically uh, learning from their feet. So this evening, I want to I explore together what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what we can learn from this particular image and why Jesus employs this image for all of us as Christians. As we see in this passage, Jesus calling Simon Peter and, and James and John to be his disciples. Thus, as we explore this, this image of, of discipleship, I'd like to do so in three main points. First, we'll consider how Jesus pursues his disciples. Next, we'll consider how Jesus provides a sign for his disciples. And lastly, the faith of his disciples. So first we see that Jesus pursues his disciples. Now as I mentioned, this idea of being a disciple has to do with someone following a, a particular teacher or rabbi. And therefore to introduce this point, to use a, an image or an illustration, an educational image or illustration from our own day. I think sometimes we can think of becoming a disciple like trying to get into a good college. Or you need good test scores, good grades, application, resume, and then maybe you'll have a chance. Sometimes we can start thinking that way when it comes to being a disciple of Christ, where we need to get our act together first before we can even come to Christ. We need to put together a good resume, as it were, to try to be a worthy candidate for Christ and his church. But here in this passage, we see rather the opposite, that Jesus is the one who pursues his disciples, individuals who are completely unworthy of this calling. That is to say, Jesus pursues those who flunked out of school, have no right to be in his following. Well, in chapter 5, we just got done reading, begins with this scene where Jesus is surrounded by this crowd and they're itching to hear him speak. His authoritative word is what's been on display the last two passages that we've considered as Jesus was the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah 61, that prophecy written 700 years before. Last time we saw that Jesus' word had, a power, had power over unclean demons, had power over disease and death. And the people are wanting to hear this same word proclaimed again as they recognize this is the very word of God. Well, Jesus is on the, on the lake of uh, Gennesaret, which is also known as the Sea of Galilee. And as he's walking, this crowd is pressing in upon him. He, he spots these fishing boats that are pulled up on the shore. And the fishermen, um, of which James and John and Simon Peter uh, were were a part of, were, were cleaning their nets, washing their nets on the shore. 
And Jesus goes and gets into Simon Peter's boat and then asks Simon, calls Simon over to uh, go out a ways into the lake. And then he begins teaching the crowd from, from this boat. I'd like, us to, uh, I'd like to direct your attention to this particular detail. That Notice that Christ got into Simon Peter's boat. Christ pursued Peter, not the other way around. He's the one who interrupted Peter's day and got into his boat and took the initiative. I believe this scene is a great picture of Jesus' entire mission. He has come into all of our boats, as it were. He pursued us. We know that Jesus came to this earth for his sheep. That is, those whom the Father had given him before the foundation of the world. Or, as Paul says, that Christ came into this, this world for his bride. That was a very, very interesting metaphor. When we think of what's the closest, most intimate relationship among mankind? It was marriage. It's a personal, particular Intimate relationship, a relationship that really has no analog among humanity. And that's the image that Jesus uses to describe who he came to save. His bride, a personal, particular people with whom he is intimate. I say, Jesus didn't come just to make salvation possible. He came to actually accomplish it for his sheep, his bride, his people. So if you believe in Jesus this evening, if you're thinking about believing in Jesus, know that you were the motivation for his coming, for his entering into human history. You were the motivation for him suffering a life under the common curse. You were the motivation for him dying on the cross. You were the motivation for him perfectly obeying God's law in all of its entirety. He came to come into your boat, as it were, to pursue you. I think, you know, we all, in our ordinary lives, you know, we all are motivated, especially when we're going through something that takes discipline. We're motivated by, by rewards. It's a particular busy season at work. We're motivated for the time of rest or vacation that we're looking forward to. If we're, motiva- if we're doing a difficult workout, we're motivated to get through that because of rest on the other side or, or benefit, uh, the benefit of how we may feel or our health or what we might be able to eat afterwards. We're motivated by rewards. Well, Jesus was motivated to come to this earth to live and do what he did because of you in particular. Think about that for a moment. He wasn't just thinking about generic sum of people. He had you in particular in mind. So the next time you are experiencing doubts, you're struggling with the ongoing battle of sin, remember that. He was walking this earth as he was hanging on the cross. He was thinking of you and your particular weaknesses and struggles and sins. That's an amazing thought. And thanks be to God that Jesus has entered our boats. He's pursued his disciples as he's pursued you and me.
Well, Jesus not only pursues his disciples, but he also reveals his identity to them. This leads us then to uh, my second point, where Jesus provides a sign. He provides a sign for his disciples. Now, just as when you go to a new school, let's say you're starting at a new school, or you're starting, at a, a, starting college for the first time, it's very important that you're at the right school, you're in the right classroom. In order to make sure that you're in the right place, signs are particularly helpful. So we see here in this passage that Jesus not only pursues Simon Peter, gets into his boat, but then he gives him a sign revealing that he is worthy of being followed, indicating that he is not just a Messiah, he is the Messiah. This is the Holy One of God who demands his allegiance. So let's see where we get this in, in our text. So as we pick up in this narrative, we see that Jesus is in Simon's boat. And in verse 4, we read that he had finished teaching. He was teaching the crowds from this boat. And he had finished teaching. And he told Simon to put the nets back into the water. And Simon responds in verse 5. He says, well, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. You can't imagine what he's thinking. Okay, Jesus, I, I know you're a learned teacher and, and uh, you speak with authority, but come on. I've been doing this for years. We're professional fishermen here. What makes you think that your presence is going to make any difference? But nevertheless, we see uh, Simon reluctantly obeying and says, but at your word, I will let down your nets. Let's see what happens. We're obviously not uh, being successful on our own. And the unthinkable happens. They cast their nets down, and their nets are bursting with fish, so much so that they had to call the other boats in to help bring up these nets. And it was so much fish, so, uh, so many fish that were caught in this net, the boats almost sunk. Boys and girls, just think about that. These boats almost sunk. They caught nothing all night. And Jesus enters this boat, tells them to cast the nets. And their boats almost sink with fish. Probably the best day fishing they've had. Notice the stark contrast between Peter's, what we just saw Peter say, and now his reaction after this occurrence. Peter falls down on his face before Jesus and cries out, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Oh, Lord. Peter, who, who really was not believing, he was doubting just moments before, now recognizes that he is not in the presence of any mere teacher. This is indeed the Holy One of God. And we see that this miraculous sign by Jesus, and of course with the help of the, the Holy Spirit, convinced Peter that this is a person who's absolutely worthy of his allegiance, worthy of him following his Lord. Peter was in the presence of the divine. Now this sign revealed to Peter and, and, and likely the other fishermen, James and, and John, the identity, the divinity of Christ. But is there 
another sign, a sign that Christ is yet to accomplish, in the context, you know, based on the context of this text. Another sign that reveals the identity and divinity of Jesus in a much, much greater way. I think there is. The resurrection. The resurrection is the definitive sign that Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus has accomplished what he said he would accomplish. That this is no mere teacher, no wise philosopher. This is the Son of God. The resurrection is is like that first domino in a line of, of standing dominoes. And if that first domino of the resurrection stands, so stands a Christian faith. But if that first domino of the resurrection falls, so goes every article of religion. And we live in a very therapeutic, psychologized, subjective age and world and culture. And as Christians, I think we can oftentimes fall prey in thinking, intuiting, speaking, about our faith, speaking about Christianity in these terms. That is, we can place Christianity, place our faith merely in the realm of of our experience, of the subjective. And accordingly, when, when we're thinking this way and we speak about our faith in Christianity to unbelieving friends and, and neighbors, it becomes very easy to reject. If if Jesus is primarily the mission of Jesus is primarily just to make us psychologically happy or personally fulfilled and give us purpose. Well, it's very easy to reject. Be very easy to respond to this and say, well, well, I'm glad that works for you. I'm glad Christianity is filling that void. But I have my own values and beliefs and practices that, that are making me psychologically fulfilled, whether it's in, um, in nature or yoga or Eastern meditation. This is not to say that Jesus or Christianity has no bearing upon the subjective. Indeed, it does. However, it is to say that Christianity is in first and foremost a historical and objective faith. And this is where we need to begin. Christianity needs to be taken into this this realm because we see the resurrection, which is the heart of our faith, is an objective historical reality. Reality that has much evidence. Evidence that ultimately doesn't doesn't prove to us the existence of Jesus. We need the spirit. But it's an objective historical reality. And it's something that every single person, no matter their experience, needs to reckon with. It's a reality that calls all individuals to their knees. The same position that we see Peter in in this passage. We know that everyone will be in this position, whether willingly or forced, the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's an important note for us to consider as in our own lives as we seek to give a defense of the reason of the hope that lies within us. And furthermore, as Christians, as those who are disciples of Christ, it's an important reminder who we are serving, who we are following. We are following not just a a sage, a philosopher, a a wise teacher who lived 2,000 years ago. We are following the resurrected and ascended Christ who is right now seated over all things as king over the universe. 
Well, so far we've considered what Jesus does as he pursues his disciples. As Jesus reveals who he is, reveals his identity through a sign. But do, what do we as disciples do? We've already seen what Jesus does, but what do we do? Well, we see a work called exercise faith. And here in this passage, we see Peter's faith in particular on display. And we see three dimensions of this faith. Faith is something that you can, it's, it's multifaceted. It's sort of like a diamond. You can rotate in the light and see different angles of it. And so I'd like to look at, at the faith that Simon Peter is displaying from, from three different angles, three different dimensions. And so first we see that, that Peter's faith was a humble faith. Peter's faith was a humble faith. And we see this in, in what we've already considered in verse 8. Simon Peter's response to this miraculous sign of, of Christ himself as he says, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Peter recognizes that he was in the presence of the Holy One. And when someone recognizes they're in the presence of the Holy One, as a way of, of shining a spotlight on our sinfulness, our wickedness, our unworthiness. This is a theme that we see throughout Scripture. When God reveals himself, when there's theophanies, this is how people respond. They're completely undone by the holiness of who God is, the moral perfection of our Creator. In fact, there's a lot of similarity here to, to Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6. As Isaiah is caught up and has this vision of God in his heavenly throne room. And we read that, that Isaiah's response, initial, immediate response, was to say, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Peter here is saying pretty much the same thing as he realizes this is no mere teacher. And this response is a display of humility. And what is humility? Well, humility really is a true and proper recognition of ourself, of our limitations. And viewed in this light, we see that faith is by its very nature humble because it recognizes who we truly are in light of a holy God. A humble faith recognizes who we truly are in light of a holy God. That we are completely de uh, destitute, unable to present anything that can stand before the judgment seat of God. Unable to make ourselves acceptable before the truly holy being of this universe. So do you have a humble faith? Have you come to the end of yourself? and recognizing that you cannot do it. You need another, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ, to do what you couldn't do. Faith is humble. But we also see that faith is believing. And we see Peter's believing faith. You'll notice in verse 10, Jesus' response to, to, to Simon, uh, Simon Peter's uh, reaction was to say, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And Peter seems to believe this as this passage ends with a note saying that Peter leaves everything and follows this Savior, Jesus himself. And Jesus speaks these very same words to us. Do not be afraid. This really is the gospel. 
Christ is, as we confess in the first question and answer of Heidelberg, he's the one who watches over us, so much so that not even a, a hair from our head can fall apart from the will of his Father in heaven. Do not be afraid. We all can acknowledge that in the midst of, of our own lives, our own particular individual lives with his cares, his concerns, his anxieties, this is very difficult. To believe this, to stand upon this, to live as if this is indeed true. And our faith grows in moments when we're tempted to be fearful. When there appears to be a contradiction between what we see with our eyes and our circumstances and what the ear, our ears of faith hear in the word. These are moments, opportunities for our faith to grow. You know, similar to you know, if you're training for a marathon or some other athletic event or if you're just wanting to get into better shape, I think we all recognize that in order to be successful in that, you need to put yourself in uncomfortable situations. You need to push yourself. In a similar way, it's in those uncomfortable situations, those situations which are, are, are difficult, where we can't really make out what's before us, the valleys of this life. It's in those opportunities that our faith is being exercised. And they are indeed opportunities. They're not, it's easy to think of them as obstacles, but these are opportunities where our faith is getting a workout, as it were, where we're being called upon to believe, to believe what we profess, to believe these words of our Lord Jesus Christ, who says, do not be afraid. This faith of Peter is humble faith, is a believing faith, but it's also an active faith. It leads to, to action. In verse 10, we read, That when uh, Jesus says, do not be afraid, and then he tells them that from now on you will be catching men. Luke notes, and when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. We see that parallel where Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, Peter, you you were catching fish, but now I'm giving you a a new purpose, a new mission. You're going to be catching men. Men for the kingdom of God. And we read that note that they left everything and followed Jesus. Left everything and followed Jesus. Let's dwell a few moments on what, on this phrase. We see in, in the context of Luke that Peter didn't leave everything in his life. As we saw last week, he was married. He had a mother-in-law. We don't know the extent of his family but he presumably didn't leave his wife. We also know John 20 tells us that after Jesus died, he went back to fishing for a time. And so, what did he leave? Luke does say he left everything. Well, he clearly left the vocation of fishing for this time, he, and he, he left these fish. When he, would have saw these, uh, when he would have laid his eyes upon these boatloads of fish, he would have seen dollar signs. That would have been money, and he left that. Therefore, in the immediate context of where Peter was standing, he did indeed leave everything. He left his vocation of being a fisherman for this time and, and these boatloads of fish, which would have been quite a bit of money. It's important to note that there's nothing inherently evil about 
secular vocations, earning money. It's not as if Peter left this because being a fisherman was somehow how, uh, sinful now that he was a disciple of Jesus, or that earning money was somehow sinful now that he was a disciple. In fact, we read the Bible, it teaches the very opposite. The very beginning of, of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, the creation mandate, where we're called to exercise dominion. Part of being an image bearer of God is that we are called to exercise dominion over this earth. And that, that's where our doctrine of vocation comes from. That's where the, the right to pursue wealth comes from, where we, have, we use our creativity, our energy, our gifts to pursue part ownership in, in, this, in this earth, its products and its materials. And we're taught how we should use that wealth, obviously, throughout the scriptures. But it's important to note, it's not as if now that we're Christians, we need to somehow leave all that which is common or secular. I don't think that's what uh, is being taught here at all. But we, what we do see is that, you know, Peter was dealing with legitimate goods. Being a fisherman, that was a good thing. Earning money was a good thing, especially since he had a family. Obviously, following Jesus, a special disciple of, of Christ, was also a legitimate good. And Jesus obviously made it quite clear what he should do, as Matthew and Mark tells us that Jesus calls Simon Peter to follow him. He makes that decision for him and says, no, I want you to enter my seminary, as it were, and be one of the first church planters of the new covenant. And therefore, to choose another option would have been sinful because Jesus was, was telling him, calling him to this task. Well, how does it apply to us? Well, the difficulty of the Christian life is usually not the black and white situations of life, that which is clearly sinful and that which is clearly uh, right. It's the gray areas. It's those times when we're dealing with legitimate goods, good pursuits, good ends, and we have to discern what is the most proper, what is the most fitting for a particular season of life. And we don't have that audible voice of the Lord calling us and saying, pursue this option. That's, that's where Christian wisdom comes in. And we can't pursue all good, positive commands at one time. The negative prohibitions of Scripture, we, we, can, we should always be obeying those. But you start listing all the positive commands of Scripture, and you quickly recognize, because we're finite, we have to be selective. We can't pursue every good at the same time. And therefore, I think one principle that we can see from this passage is that Jesus is calling us to a life of discipleship, which means that we're called to prioritize his mission and his kingdom. That is primary. In fact, Jesus says this very thing in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. No doubt being a part of the mission of Jesus looks different for Peter than it does for us. But we're all called to discern to discern what, the, what goods the Lord is calling us to. Part of this the activity of faith is seeking to obey these positive commands of Scripture. We evaluate them through the lens of the mission of Christ, the kingdom of God, and being a part of that mission and kingdom. Or to put it in other ways, what's, what's best for our spiritual welfare and those of our family. So faith. 
Faith is active. It leads to that moral reasoning. It leads that desire to pursue these legitimate goods that the Lord has set out before us. It's an active faith. Well, beloved in the Lord, in response to Jesus' pursuit of his disciples and his revelation of who he is to them, we all are called to a humble, believing, and active faith. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the privilege of being called a disciple of you. We thank you that you have sent your spirit into our hearts, that you have pursued us out of our own sin and misery in which we were conceived and called us to a lifelong journey of glorifying you, of walking according to your law. We pray that you would refresh us in this life. Remind us the glorious hope we have awaiting us, awaiting us on the other side of this veil of tears. We ask these, all of this in the name of your Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ.